Good morning to you. I, I would ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where we continue our verse-by-verse study of this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. When you go verse-by-verse, week-by-week, certain texts that you may not ordinarily choose to preach from are put in front of you, and the timing of which is not by choice, or maybe it is. Sandy Wilson chose to be away precisely on the week when we're talking about sex. And it has fallen to the newlywed on staff to do that. So I ask you to bear with and engage this text with me. Dear friends, as we approach the subject of sexual immorality, we, we can approach it from a variety of ways. One common way to do so in an evangelical church is to, to read the text and then to decry the culture around us and, and its obsession with sex, to decry the sexual revolution, so-called, of the 1960s and all that has flowed out of it, and to wring our hands rather self-righteously at what's going on out there. Another way we can approach this would be to reduce this sermon, and you might like this idea, to three words from Nancy Reagan. Just say no, and it'll all be over. But in fact, the Apostle Paul goes beyond just saying no. He does say no to immorality, but he goes beyond that, and so we too will go beyond that this morning. And friends, I don't really want to engage the culture out there this morning, because the Apostle Paul is not engaging the culture out there. In fact, Corinth was a far more lascivious and licentious culture than ours today. But Paul's concern wasn't them out there. He was concerned with us in here. And indeed, sadly, we evangelicals are as prone to sexual excess as is the world out there. I understand in a recent survey taken uh, with hotels that have hosted evangelical conferences that the uh, patronage of the pornographic movies in the hotel rooms is as high or higher when evangelicals in their conferences are attending. Internet pornography is ravaging our church, our churches. Seminarians I know have struggled with it. You in this room, many of you, I've struggled with it. And so my concern this morning isn't for them out there. It's for us in here. It's your heart and mine. It's your bodies and mine that have drawn my attention because they have drawn the attention of the Apostle Paul. So let us pray and then read this weighty scripture. Gracious Lord, we do pray that you would come and that you would grab a hold of us, 
we do pray that you would take the great and glorious gospel and that you would drive it into our hearts. All of us, Lord, are prone to unbelief. All of us are prone to forget all that is ours and will be ours in you. And all of us, therefore, are prone to look at other offerings that would rival those of the gospel. We ask this morning as we engage your word that you would take it, that you would drive it in, and that you would transform us by it. Speak, Lord, for we, your servants, are listening. Amen. We read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The verses I will be focusing on are verses 12 to 20, but I would like to start by reading from verse 9. This is God's word. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. <clears throat> everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. <clears throat> As I look out across, see all of you, <clears throat> I see a number of folk who would present themselves as tidy, as well-kept, as well-mannered, as genteel, as together, or as the old phrase used to be, calm, cool, and collected. So it is with we Presbyterians. But I would also suggest to you 
that underneath that calm and cool and collected exterior lies something else. Just like Mother Earth herself, and I don't mean that in a theological sense, just like the Earth, got to be careful here, just like the Earth has a, as it were, calm, cool, and for the most part collected crust and exterior with a certain moderate temperature on which we can all live. Inside the earth is raging hot lava. And occasionally we get a little glimpse of that when a volcano goes and suddenly spouting and surging out of a volcanic eruption is that which lies in the bowels of the earth, as it were. And I would suggest to you, friends, that just like the earth, you too have a raging, surging current of hot lava. It's a lava of passion. It's a fiery zeal to live. And it is inside of you. All of us have it. We have a capacity within ourselves, a huge, gaping capacity within ourselves to experience white-hot love and it is a capacity to be, as it were, subsumed or to be drowned in, to be run over by a torrent of joy and pleasure. And all of that lies at the very ground zero of our being. And I have another thing to suggest to you, and that's this. The more mature you are in Christ, the bigger the gaping cavity of desire. The more you grow close to Christ, the more you will desire, not less. All too often, mature Christianity is presented as, as that which is uh, content and satisfied and unmoved. Dear friends, if that were the case, the psalmist is a long way away from maturity. Because if anyone is passionate, if anyone is hungry, if anyone is thirsting, it's the psalmist. And he calls and invites all of us to join him in this. Now, if some of you think I'm speaking about sexual love, sexual appetite, sexual passion, because this sermon ultimately is aimed that direction, I'm not. I'm actually speaking about your capacity to drink in God himself. I'm talking about your capacity to be filled to the fullness of Christ, to have his joy overrun you and to wipe you out in a torrent. I'm talking about having his white-hot love come over you and sweep you up like a mighty raging river. That's what I'm talking about. You see, pleasure was God's idea. Joy is God's idea. Love is God's idea. In fact, I'll go further. It's who God is. See, we tend to think of God as some Aristotelian unmoved mover, some stoic Java the Hut that just sort of sits like a blob. And dear friends, that's not the picture of the biblical God. No, the biblical God is one who himself is a passionate, fiery, loving God with a tremendous zeal. It's interesting when scripture speaks of the love between a man and a woman, it speaks powerfully, it speaks thoroughly,
but it also speaks somewhat discreetly. Adam knew his wife. I remember being in high school and told of Song of Solomon. And I was told by my youth pastor, along with all the other high schoolers, don't read Song of Solomon. <laughs> so what do you think I did that night? <laughs> I went home rather enthusiastically looking for Song of Solomon, but also found myself a little bit disappointed because I didn't really understand Song of Solomon. Because enmeshed in this passionate love poem is a poetic imagery that is both passionate but also discreet in its own way. But I would suggest to you, when God speaks of his fiery love and holy jealousy for his people's love, it becomes wildly graphic and even, dare I say, erotic. And if you want examples, I'll just give you a few passages to look at yourself. Hosea chapter 2, Ezekiel chapter 16, Ezekiel chapter 23. Just as three examples where you see a God on fire for his people. And it is graphic for those of us in 20th, 21st century Memphis, disturbingly graphic. And yet, it's what God portrays of himself through the prophets to say, I am fiery in love for my people. Now, you ask me, what does this have to do with sexuality? It has everything to do with sexuality because we can't even get into this text until we start with the fact that God's mighty passion is the starting point for sexuality. To say that God is anti-pleasure, that God is anti-passion, that God is anti-happiness, that God is anti-sex is blasphemy, dear friends. It's blasphemy. It is a blasphemy against his divine heart. Because sexuality is nothing if it is not but a portal peek into the passion of God. Because that's the imagery he uses when he speaks of his love for his people. And we Christians have allowed this perverse caricature of God to go on for far too long in our society. You see, holiness is not about austerity and just saying no. Holiness is about saying no to, to rubbish that we might say yes to God and that we might take into ourselves all of his joy, all of his love, all the pleasure that he would offer to you. So for us, to study sexuality is for us to study the heart of God. And if you want to know the core of this text, it is found in verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but listen to these words, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Therein is the crux. Therein is the epicenter of this text this morning. And I want us to look at the way the Apostle Paul unpacks that statement by looking at three reasons that he gives 
to abstain from sexual immorality. And I want to point out one last thing by way of introduction, and that's this. You will note that the Apostle Paul here is not talking at all ever in this text about the impact of adultery on one's spouse. Now, the impact upon one's spouse is enormous, and some of you in this building can bear witness to that. The impact upon one's children in the family is enormous and destructive, and some of us in this room can bear witness to that as well. And the impact upon your own body with, say, sexually transmitted diseases and all the rest can be enormous, and some of us in this room know about that. But the Apostle Paul is not focused on that. He is focused on this, that chiefly and most fundamentally, sexual immorality is a, is a violent strike at God himself, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. See, David understood that when David prays in Psalm 51, as we did a moment ago, against you and you only have I sinned. You see, sexual immorality at its fundamental level is a problem between you and God. It's not a problem between you and your spouse or you and your family or you and stress and all the rest. It's between you and the Lord. And the Apostle Paul, therefore, gives us three reasons why we are to abstain from, from sexual immorality. The first of which is this. The God the Father has earmarked us, body and soul, for eternal glory. You see this in verses 12 to 14. Now, the Corinthians seem to believe, based on these, you see in quote marks, various expressions that seem to have been born out of Corinth, and Paul is responding to them. The Corinthians seem to believe that the body was disposable, like a disposable razor. And so, therefore, sexuality was just, just a, a normal appetite of a disposable body. Food is for the stomach, stomach for the food. All will be washed away anyway. Body is for sex, sex is for the body. It'll all be washed away anyway. And a dismissing of the significance of sexuality by dismissing the significance of the body. And the Apostle Paul says, that isn't so. He says, the body will be raised by the Lord himself on the last day. You know, in Christianity, we often speak about saving somebody's souls. And a thousand souls were saved. The Lord cares for your soul. And we use the language of soul. And I myself am trying to get away from that because it sells salvation short. The truth of the matter is God's not just interested in saving souls. He wants to save our bodies as well as our souls. He's saving whole human beings. And if you want an example of that, just look at the Lord Jesus Christ himself. His body is punctured. His body is bruised. He is beaten. And yet on the resurrection day, God the Father is not content to raise just the soul of Jesus Christ, but he raises the body of Jesus Christ. And on ascension day, Jesus ascends to heaven with a body. He now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, in a body, 
and he will come again to judge the quick and the dead in a body. How much does God love bodies? Consider this, the second person of the Godhead has taken to himself a body forever. And so too, says Paul in verse 14, our bodies will be raised on that last day. God is committed to raising you up. He is so committed to raising your bodies up that you are more sure to be raised on the last day than you are sure to be raised out of bed tomorrow morning. God is watching over your bodies. And for those of you who have lost loved ones and have buried them, their soul is with Jesus Christ even now. But the Holy Spirit himself stands in that grave and he continues to unite that body with Jesus Christ. And on the last day, the Holy Spirit, having sworn off all others, saying, this body is mine, will raise it up. Because God is committed to your body. Dear friends, it sounds almost cheeky to put it this way, but I say it with all due reverence. There is no more fleshy religion than Christianity. No more fleshy religion than Christianity. No religion celebrates the body the way ours does. No God loves flesh and bone the way ours does. And I say that to you because the world tends to think that we are against sexual immorality because we're against the pleasures of the body. We are not. To the contrary, we love the body. And God himself says, it's precisely because I love the body that I don't want you to give it over to sexual immorality because I have noble purposes for it. I have glorious purposes for it. I've designed you for tremendous dignity and glory and nobility. Don't give your bodies over, therefore, to immorality. It's precisely because God loves bodies that he gives us that exhortation. That's reason number one, that who we will be when raised in glory, according to the Apostle Paul, is reason enough not to be sexually immoral. But he gives us a second reason in verses 15 and 17. He says this, God the Son has united us, body and soul, to himself in a holy covenant. Now the language that Paul uses here in verses 15, when he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? You'll find that same language over in Ephesians chapter 5. You remember there in Ephesians 5 from about verse 23 to 31 or 32, the apostle Paul likens the marriage of the husband and the wife to Christ and the church. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself, gave himself up for her. The wife is to submit to her, her husband as to the Lord, as the church submits to the Lord. And Paul there goes on to speak of that relationship between husband and wife as akin to Christ and the church. And what he is saying there is that Christ and the church are united in a powerful, as it were, marriage covenant. So powerful that because our bodies are members of Christ, that for Christ to hate us is for Christ to hate himself. 
because you and I have been joined to him. We're, we're one with him. That doesn't make us God. We are not one in essence with him. But we have been united to him in a covenant such that he cannot separate himself from us. He has to love us the way he loves himself. And Paul here is saying in verse 15, the implication, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? He is in effect saying the most shocking of things, that we are one flesh with Christ. And then if you look at verse 17, he says, but one who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So we are one flesh, verse 15. We are one in spirit, verse 17. So we are in covenant with God. And this language goes, it's built upon the understanding of the Old Testament. And it immediately arouses two implications with respect to sexual immorality. And that's this. Sexual immorality robs God of your covenant love and devotion. And as I said a moment ago, when God is interested in our faithfulness to him, his interest is white hot. His interest is surging. It is a holy jealousy that is almost unnerving because God loves us with a muscular, vigorous, surging love, and he wants us for himself, and he's not going to let you be wooed away by another without interjecting himself. In sexual immorality, unites you in a covenant with another, a rival to God. The prostitute is not a rival to your wife. She's a rival to God. The internet pornography is not a rival to your wife or your husband or whatever. She is a rival to God. And God himself won't stand for it. His love is too strong. His love is too powerful. And he won't be denied. But secondly, implied from the fact of our being united with Christ, is that sexual immorality robs us of God's covenant love and joy for us. As I said to you in the beginning, there is a gaping hole in your person for love, to both love and to be loved. There is a gaping hole whole in your being to know pleasure. God created that. He wanted you to know joy and pleasure. Jonathan Edwards pictures heaven in the most unbelievable way. He pictures heaven as a place not only of joy, but of increasing joy. And he even raises the question, could it be an, a joy increasing at an accelerating rate? And a pleasure. Why? Because we are caught up in God. We are united to God who is the ultimate in joy, who is the ultimate in, in pleasure. And when you think about it like that, the only question I have about heaven is, can we stand it without exploding? Because God would have for you pleasure. Listen to these words from the Old Testament, these great promises. He promises to us hills dripping with wine. He promises us a feast of rich foods, aged wine, the best of meats. 
He promises us a river of delights. He promises us eternal pleasures. As the choir has just sung, he invites us, taste and see that the Lord is good. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 81, open your mouth wide, stretch those cheeks, pull them open, and cram in as much as you can. God says, open them up wide, I'll fill them. You see, God doesn't forbid sexual immorality because it offers too much pleasure. He forbids sexual immorality because it offers way too little. Do you understand? God doesn't want to kill your joy. He wants to stoke it. He wants to flood your soul. He wants to give you every good and perfect thing. And he's saying, don't choose hell thinking it's heaven. Don't chew on crusty, stale breadcrumbs when I'm offering you a seat at the banquet of heaven with the choicest of everything. Don't settle, friends, is what he is saying. The third reason that the Apostle Paul gives to us to abstain from sexual immorality is in verses 18 to 20. God, the Holy Spirit, indwells us, making us God's possession. And herein is the climax to Paul's great theme, that our body is for the Lord, but the Lord is for our body. Because listen to this. He has purchased our bodies. Jesus Christ has paid the price to possess us, to own us. He has set us free. He has bought us out of slavery. He has ransomed us, is the language of Scripture, from sin, death, and the devil, and he has brought us into the kingdom of life, delivering us from the devil himself. And we're now his. So the body which he wants, which he is committed to raising, is his. But also note these incredible words that he is for the body. Look at this. The Holy Spirit has been poured into you. Dear friends, this harkens back again to the Old Testament when the tabernacle was being built and then the temple was being built. And this would be the dwelling place for the name of God. And when the cloud, the glory cloud of heaven descended upon both the tabernacle and the temple, the priests were driven out. They couldn't stand it because God had come to make his presence in the temple. Now you and I are that temple. You and I are that tabernacle. The glory cloud of heaven has come to descend on you. That God himself, as as it were, through the funnel of the Holy Spirit, is pouring the entirety of himself into you. Go figure. The Apostle Paul says, it is my prayer that you would be filled to the fullness of Christ. Filled up. And you see, sexual immorality runs in the face of all that. That your body is for the Lord, purchased by him. And the Lord is for your body, having been funneled by means of the Holy Spirit into you. And so what we see in the Apostle Paul's writings here is that sexual relations outside of the context of marriage is an affront 
not just to God, to the triune God. It's an affront to the purposes of God the Father for your body on the last day. It's an affront to the covenant you have with God the Son, having been united to Him. It's an affront to God the Holy Spirit who indwells you with that great glory cloud, transforming you from glory to glory. Now, dear friends, why would you trade away the glories of the triune God having been pledged to you, having been promised to you? Why would you trade them away like Esau for a mess of pottage, for a bowl of stew, for a quick hit? All of us in this room will, all of our lives, struggle with our sexuality. It is a powerful force. And there are many, I suspect, in this room who are caught up even now, whether in a sexually illicit relationship, whether you're flirting with a sexually illicit relationship, or even flirting with fantasy by way of magazine, computer, what have you. Dear friends, I appeal to you. The gospel has offered to you infinite pleasure, and that includes pleasure for your body, because he's going to save your body. Don't trade away the feast of heaven for a little bowl of soup now. It isn't a good trade. And some of you may need help. We as a church stand ready to come alongside of you and walk with you. And know this, if you are caught in a web, there's no sin too deep for Jesus Christ not to reach deeper still. That's why we read verses 9 to 11. Yes, sin is serious. But the gospel promises that we can be washed clean, that we can be sanctified, that is, made holy, and that we can be justified, seen as if we lived the righteousness of Christ, and Him be seen as, he, as if He lived our immoral ways. Dear friends, receive Christ. Receive the gospel. Take it to yourself. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, <clears throat> we do thank you for this great gospel hope that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are united in offering to us the glories, the joys, the pleasures, the wonders of life itself. Father, may you protect our feet from straying in unholy paths May you deliver our feet from the bondage of sin and lead us in the way everlasting. Pray in Jesus' strong and great name. Amen.